The question of today is this. Is the resurrection literal or is it figurative? If it's figurative, it is a very helpful story to live by. But if it's literal, this story absolutely changes everything. If it's a figurative story, it might inspire you. But if it's literal, then you have a hope that cannot even be robbed by the grave. And if you believe it's literal today, I'm going to help fortify your belief. And if you think that it is figurative, well, I'm going to present a case to you that I think is very difficult to deny. And I'd also like to challenge you with, why, with this question, why wouldn't you want it to be true? And I think what happens to us is often we sacrifice truth for something that we want. We've got to investigate what, it is, what is it the thing that we want that might cause us to say no to this claim of the resurrection. So we're in our series called Jonah. Jonah is a tale of compassion, death, and resurrection. And it's a masterful story that is memorable and very, very well written. And we're going to actually jump out of the book of Jonah today. And we're going to jump into the book of Matthew. And we're going to ask this question. What does Jesus make of this story about Jonah? What does Jesus think this story is all about? How are we supposed to hear the story of Jonah today, and what does it mean for us? So, we're going to be in Matthew 12. If you want to open up your Bibles there, swipe open your phones, it'll be up on the screen too. And I want to tell you this. So, leading up to what Jesus says about the book of Jonah, a lot of things have happened. Jesus has given his famous Sermon on the Mount that is loved by both believers and skeptics alike. He's been healing people. He's been performing miracles. And he's been making some audacious claims about himself. Saying that he is greater than the temple. Meaning his claim is that he is the very presence of God. He makes the claim that he is the son of man. Which means he's claiming that he has come to be the one who's going to deliver the world. And he's claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, which means that he himself, see, your heart is chasing after rest. It's trying to find peace, and your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in him. These are his claims. In our verses today, religious leaders come and ask him for a sign that will offer proof that what he claims about himself is true. And so here's how all of it goes down. Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Then the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth 
to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. First point, show me the proof. The religious elite, the professionals, they come up to Jesus and they ask him for a sign that will prove he is who he says he is. Now, what is a sign? A sign is like the divine paperwork that claims, that shows that you are speaking for God. Dale Bruner, in his commentary in Matthew, explains there's a difference between a miracle and a sign. A miracle is something that's done on the earth, but a sign is something that comes down from heaven. He says that many people can perform miracles, but when you perform a sign, it's proof that you are operating under divine authority. But when we have to ask here, not only what are they asking for a sign, but we have to ask this question, why are they asking for it? What are these religious elite after? And, well, what we know is this. They are not curious about Jesus. They are not open-minded about him. They are asking this question because they are trying to nail him into the ground. They're at war with him. And they do not want this uprising, this movement that is happening around Jesus to keep going. They're trying to stall it out. They're trying to disband his followers and his disciples. And Jesus responds by, you want a sign? I'm sorry. But my, my signs are not for sale. Yes, you might be the spiritual elite of the day, but I will not dance for you. They're not coming for proof, they're coming for war. Because Jesus has already shown them enough. He's healed the sick. He's performed miracles. He's showing that his teaching and his mastery of the Old Testament is unmatched by any other. He's been in debates with the spiritual elites, and he keeps on winning these debates, and the way that he lives his life morally is unlike any others around him. And because of his level of morality, because of the miracles, and because of what he claims about himself, he is a force to be reckoned with. And the religious elite, what they're trying to do is create a false narrative about him. Now, why would someone try to create a false narrative about Jesus? Well, it's easy. If he claims what he claims about himself is true, then you lose control of your life. Because that means he is the Lord of all. And he is a presence that you have to deal with. He's one that you either write off and kill, or you bow to him. He's the author of all things. Think about it like this. If there's a painter who paints a painting, he's the designer of it. He knows what he meant by the painting. Now, if a bunch of people are studying this painting in a room and they're looking up at it, and one person says, I think the painting means this, and another person says, no, it means this. If that painter walks into the room, he becomes the authority of what the meaning of the painting is. You have been made by God. And that is comforting Or terrifying, depending on two things, what you make of him. Do you want, look at me, look at me, look at me. Do you want to be the God of your life? Do you want to be in control of your life? Because if you do, 
you will have to write him off. You will be forced to rewrite a narrative about him because if you don't, you lose control of your life. So what are you going to do? But if you believe he's infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely loving, and he is willing to pay whatever cost is necessary to win you back to him, well, that is very comforting news because you know he's good and you know that you can trust him. The religious leaders do not want to give him control. And Jesus knows this. So look at what he calls them. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Now, this is a monumental claim in and of itself because by him calling them adulterers, he's saying that they're rejecting him, Jesus. And because they're rejecting Jesus, they're actually rejecting God. Look at what he's doing. He's making himself equal to God. Another monumental claim that you've got to deal with. Now, the question, let's ask another question about ourselves. What are some ways that we become adulterous with God? What are some ways that we move him out of our life? Well, I want to tell you something about Christians. Something about you if you are one. You love growing. You have, you have this understanding that God wants you to become something. And you're seeking to become more of that version of yourself that you're meant to become. This is a good thing. The problem becomes when we try to do it without God. That's actually adulterous because he is the source of our growth. And see, what we're after is we're after this this try-hard thing where we're saying, God, look at me. Don't you see how hard I'm trying? Don't you see how hard I'm working for you, God? Aren't you just so lucky, God, to have me? Aren't you so proud of me? And what you're after, you're fishing for something. You're fishing for his approval that is outside of the work of Christ so that you can feel like you did it without him. That's adulterous. That's you doing the work that Christ has already done on your behalf. Second thing. We make ourselves out to be victims. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not saying you have not had a tremendously difficult life because maybe you have. And I'm not saying that that life has not buried you in a way. And I'm not saying coming up out of that isn't going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And I'm not saying you don't even have the right to claim victim. You do. You can claim that. However, however, When you become a Christian, your identity changes. And you're no longer a victim anymore. Yes, things have happened to you. And in one sense, you are a victim. But in another sense, your true identity is as being a child of God. Now, if you're a child of God, you say this. I'm not a parent of a sick child. I'm a child of God first. And my child is sick. That is a very different thing. You don't say, I'm someone who's unsuccessful. Maybe you are unsuccessful in worldly terms. But the statement of a Christian is, I'm a child of God first. And God is reorienting my understanding of what success actually is. So you measure it in terms of how God says, what is good? What is a good life that's well lived? Or you say, I'm someone with a disability. No, you're a child of God and you happen to have a disability. And that doesn't mean it's not difficult and it's not painstaking. But what it does mean is it's not the end of your story. And one day, whatever that disability is completely wiped away. It's gone. You say, I'm a sinner. 
Well, it's true, but that's not your identity. You're a child of God. Christ has dealt with your sin once and for all. Be free of it. So you've chastened growth in an idolatrous way. You're making yourself a victim in an idolatrous way. Third, there's something that you're meant to do with your life. And what, what, what I would like to offer you is that there's a potential that you aren't seeing it, you're falling short of it, and, and you're not even aiming for it. Perhaps God wants you to aim for something much larger than you are. And the reason you are, aren't doing it is because you don't think you can get there. And what I want to tell you is if you will aim for heaven on the earth in your life, it will become a task that is so impossible to you that you will have no choice but to reach to God for help to do it. And then all idolatry within you is wiped away because you're finally relying on him for help. So perhaps you are like these religious elite. You want more proof. And maybe you want more proof because you don't want him to take claim over your life. Or maybe... You want more proof because you see that you are prone to run. And you need to be reminded in your heart why he is someone you should run after and not from. Because we all do this. And here's what I want to offer. If this is not this, this proof thing, think of it more as your posturing. Are you looking for proof because you want to prove him not to have risen from the dead? That way you stay in control of your life? Or are you looking to see if he has risen because you have dared to hope? Because maybe there is something more. And maybe you are ready to give yourself over to him. Maybe you're saying, God, I need more proof so I can just trust you again. Well, here's the answer Jesus gives you. He says, I myself am the proof. Second point, he says, I'm the proof. By him saying something greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon is here is him saying he is the proof. And, and what he's doing, and he's, he's saying, if you want to find out what is good, and you go to something other than him to measure goodness, then you are being idolatrous there. Because you're going and you're measuring goodness by something that's less than him, who is the ultimate definition of good. So you must always arrive at him. So, so he's upping the claims again, and he's saying, look, if you want to know what truth is, if you want to know what goodness is, if you want to know what life is all about, stop measuring me based off of other things and just come to me. There's no greater proof than him. And when the ultimate proof, Christ, says he is what he says he is, you have to say okay, because there's no greater authority. Now, you say that's circular, and you're right, it is. That's what happens when you arrive at the most powerful thing, the most authoritative thing, the thing that's in control of all things. The mighty things are up at the top. Now, you can take other things and, and, and measure it for proof, but ultimately, you have to arrive at him. There's no greater sign than him. And when he says there's something greater than Jonah, what he's saying is that there's something greater than death before you. He's making the claim about himself. And when he says there's something greater than Solomon here, he's making the claim that he is infinitely wise over all things. Another monumental claim. You've got to deal with him. And then he, in the Gospel of John, he does say there is one thing greater than him. It's funny what he does, though. Because 
the same exchange is happening. There's some religious leaders, and he says to them, look, don't take my word for it. Look at the things that I'm doing. But he says, don't even take, don't even take what I'm doing for it. Look at the Old Testament. All of it, he says, is pointing to him. Monumental claim. He says the point of it all is him. Like, you have to deal with him. And, and what's funny about what he says is in John, John says, Jesus is the word made flesh. So even when he says, go to the word, he's still saying, look at me. He's, he's a very smart savior. And I got to tell you this, at this point, you have to be making a decision about him. And your decision must be, this guy is crazy, or I should be bowing to him. And there is no room for an in-between response to him. The religious and political leaders of Jesus' day had very sound logic. They made the logical deduction that the only thing left for them to do is kill him. And they were right. If they reject him, if they don't make him savior, they have to kill him. Otherwise, he takes over their lives. And so you must make this decision. Will you kill him off or will you worship him? And then you say, David, you're kind of being dramatic here. Well, maybe, but I don't know. I mean, yes, you need some space. Fine. But just know this. The same way that we saw a few weeks ago that when Jonah ran from Jesus, ran from God, God sent a storm after him. When you run from God, he sends a storm. Now, I'm going to tell you the storm, it's merciful because the storm that was sent by God to Jonah was meant to turn him back to him. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. In other words, God is sending the storm out of the kindness of his heart so that you will turn back to him the greatest thing that would ever happen to you. Sometimes difficulty comes before the prize. And you might actually be running from him because you're not ready to make a decision about him. And I've kind of messed you up a little bit here because I've really shown you that, man, you have to make a decision. What are you going to do? So let me do this. Let me give you some proof that you can trust him. When he says something greater than Jonah is here, he's saying, if you don't trust that I am what I say I am, keep watching me. Watch what I'm about to do. Third point, keep watching me. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, the first part of it, it's the resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and the fish spit him out, so the Son of Man, Christ, will be buried underneath the earth for three days and three nights and then death will spit him out. He's too much for it. Now, here's what I want to offer for you. Measure the truth of his claims on the resurrection and measure the resurrection on his claims. In other words, here's what I mean. He's claimed he's going to do it. And then he did it. The Old Testament's been claiming he's going to do it. And then he did it. And he keeps on doing all the things that he's saying he's going to do. So he's trustworthy. Now, okay, you or maybe someone you know might be saying, yeah, but come on. Didn't the, resur- didn't the disciples just make this all up? And can we really trust what the Bible is saying? Well, let me say one thing very quickly about the Bible. The Bible is the most historically accurate document ever written to an exponential degree. 
But I'm not going to get into that today. I'm going to do something I've never done. And I'm going to say, okay, fine. Let's pretend like God's word isn't God's word. Let's just pretend for a second. Let's pretend that and ask this question. Is there still enough evidence for the resurrection? And the answer is yes. And we're not going to turn to the Bible for the proof. We're going to turn to critical scholars. A critical scholar is, is a scholar that is not a Christian, that has studied historically the death and the resurrection of Christ. And we're going to see what they say. And it's so fascinating. We're going to talk about six facts, five of which all critical scholars, scholars who are not Christians, agree upon. Virtually all of them agree upon that. And then we're going to look on a, at a sixth fact that 75% of critical scholars agree upon. All right, here's where we go. We're going to just walk right down them. Fact one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Some people claim it wasn't really Jesus who died. That Judas took his place. It's called the swoon theory. Now, I want you to imagine, this is a public execution Jesus' loved ones are there. They're seeing it happening. Jesus is speaking. There's no way somehow someone scurries up the cross and takes, place, takes his place. Also, Judas has just denied him. He has no desire to take the place of Christ. Some say, but yeah, but he really didn't die. They thought he was dead. They took him off, and then he kind of just like walked away. Problem with that claim is that they take a spear and they shove it into his side. Now, when they shove the spear into his side, blood and water burst out. When you die, you're, all around your lungs, water is filling up. The reason it says blood and water came out is because it's proof that he's died. Water has come out. He's dead. All critical scholars agree. So he has died. Second fact. The disciples believed that they actually saw him risen from the dead, along with 500 other eyewitnesses. Some people say they must have imagined this. Now, here's the problem with this. Never in history have we seen people, multiple people, see something and have a mass hallucination of what they saw. And not just one event, but multiple events. The disciples together with multiple different people uh, and, and masses of people are seeing the resurrection of Christ. It is, you have to deal with one or two miracles. Either Jesus rose from the dead or somehow a mass population of people all had the same hallucination at the same time and all proclaimed it to be true. It's a miracle either way. And all critical scholars agree on this. Third fact, the disciples were martyred because they said he rose. Many claim that the disciples made this up. Liars make horrible martyrs. People might die for something that they believe is true, but if the disciples made this up, nobody dies for a lie. At some point, every single one of them are crucified, not just a regular death, an a death that is filled with torture, proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. And essentially, they're, they're, the people who are killing them are saying, we'll just let you down if you will just admit that he didn't rise from the dead. And they all die proclaiming it's true. And Peter is even crucified upside down proclaiming he believes it's true. They would have bailed. Critical scholars agree on this. 
Fourth fact. Paul was a persecutor. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was a persecutor of Christians, a killer of Christians, and then he has this instant change because he claimed he saw Christ risen from the dead. Now, a lot of people will say, Paul, Paul was just chasing after power. He was reaching for power, and that's why he became a Christian. Now, those people clearly have not read the story of Paul because Paul becomes a Christian and suffers for the sake of what he believes is true. He dies, he's martyred for it, he is stoned, he was, they thought he was dead, but he wasn't. He was shipwrecked multiple times. This is a man who has suffered immensely for the sake of this news about Jesus getting out. Critical scholars agree. Fifth fact, James, Jesus' half-brother, was a skeptic of Jesus. Didn't believe he was who he said he was. And then, the resurrected Jesus appears to James. He becomes a believer a leader of the early church, and a martyr as well. Critical scholars agree. The, set, the sixth one, the tomb was empty. Now, 75% of critical scholars agree that the tomb was empty. Now, it's not 100%, it's not 99%, but it's a significant number because these are people who are saying I, they are not Christians. So let's, let's talk about this empty tomb. Some say... They didn't know where his body was. They forgot where the tomb was. Now, this can't be true because they knew who the owner of the tomb was. So that's not true. Some say, well, they stole it. Well, let me tell you something about Jesus. He's been proclaiming that he's going to rise from the dead. The religious leaders are super pissed about it. They want this movement to go away. And so, and the political leaders want this movement to go away. So they send a whole bunch of, well, they send some Roman guards. And you don't mess with Roman guards. They're guarding the tomb to make sure no one takes the body. So the body was not stolen. And by the way, if this story was made up, women would not be the first people to discover the risen Jesus. And I'll tell you why. Because during that time, the witness of a woman was not seen as credible as the witness of a man. And so if they're making up this story, they're not going to tell it the way it's being told here. Each one of these carries tons of proof. And then you add up all the ways he's predicted that this is going to happen. And then you add up all the Old Testament prophecies that are pointing to this, that this happening. And you just keep adding everything up. And then you look at his claims. And you say, well, man, that's the claims of a crazy person. But he didn't live like a crazy person. He was the most respected man at the time because of the level of his morality. Look, guys, you just got to deal with him. If you're playing poker and you're dealt a jack, well, a ten, a jack, a queen, a king, and an ace, all the same suit. And everybody else, the three other people you're playing with, are all dealt the same hand of the same suit, each person. You're going to think that maybe the dealer is up to something. And then if that happens three times in a row, you're going to say, okay, that's enough. Clearly the dealer is doing something here. All I'm saying is that eternity is at stake. And Jesus is making claims that have to force you into a decision. And given the evidence, the most rational and logical move is to believe. 
but not, it's not just rational and logical. This is news that is beautiful. And it's not just beautiful news. It's not just hopeful news. It's useful. The values of Christianity produces the most flourishing in all of the world more so than any other belief system. If you add up all of this, I don't know what you're waiting for. Unless you don't want to lose control of your life. So how do you respond to all this? Well, Jesus is actually telling us here. Fourth point. Jesus speaks of the queen of the south. Who went on this long journey to investigate the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. In other words... Walk to the ends of the earth to investigate it because the claims are too big to ignore. And he says something greater than Jonah is here. Now the Ninevites responded. So Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached this good news or this news about change. The Ninevites listened. They were enemies of Jonah, yet they listened. So Jesus is, he's giving you some advice. And the advice is this, be open-minded to all of this. Don't close it down investigate the claims. They're too big not to. And listen closely. Take it in. But don't just take it in in your mind. Take it in in your heart. and Let it echo around in the halls of your heart. The other thing Jesus tells you to do is, well, give him claim on your life. So Jonah goes to the Ninevites, says change, and they changed. And, and in a way, they gave God claim on their life. Give him claim. Because right now, what is claiming you is fear. Right now, what is claiming you is your failures, your brokenness, your shame, your guilt, all of your losses, your sin. But if you give yourself to him, those things have no claim on you because he has claimed you. And if he's the ultimate authority, he's the ultimate in power, then whatever tries to claim you, he knocks away and says, you have no claim here. You have no power here. This is a child of the living God. Back off. He claims you. And when he does, it changes your life. And then the last thing he tells you to do is be in awe of him. This queen of the south went to Solomon and saw his wisdom, and was in awe of Solomon. Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. Travel the ends of the earth. Find him. Be in awe of him, and worship him. Give him control. The good news of the death and resurrection of Christ is the wisest thing that has ever happened. God in his infinite wisdom has planned this out since the foundation of the earth. And he's planned this moment out for you to hear this. There's a place where Jesus prays in John and he prays for all who would believe. That's, that's a big deal because that means he's praying for you. And he not just prayed for you, he died for you. And he didn't just die for you, but he fought against sin and death in the grave and rose up out of it so that can be your story too. 
So you dare to hope. You dare to desire more. And then you go and you give him all the desires of your heart and you give him claim on your life. And then you say he really has risen indeed. Let's pray. God, take our hands that are gripping to our lives so tightly and pry them off of us and take them and wrap them around you and let us see that you have wrapped us up in our death and in our sin and you have lifted us up into new life. God, let us give you claim in our life. Let us stop fighting you, God. Stop running from you. Show us the reason. Show us the proof. Give us the sign of the resurrection. Make us believe in our heart that this is true. Because we can't do it without you. We can't do it without your work in us. So do that work now, we pray in Jesus' name.